Hi, this is Carrie Spaulding, professional coach, and I'm here today talking with Matt Harvey about his career change from software programming to public policy. So, Matt, tell me a little bit about the beginning of your career journey. So, I uh, graduated from college uh, 15 years ago and um, uh, started out uh, working in the software industry. And I spent um, 10 years uh, working as a programmer and various other kinds of things in the technology space. So what made you start out in that field? I was majoring in religious studies, which is an area I still find fascinating, but which very few people will pay you to do. Uh, and uh, about partway through my college career, uh, my roommate Adam said, you should take a computer science class. And Adam's the kind of person that says things, and you go, okay. <laughs> um, so I did. It turns out I was good at it. Um, and uh, ended up with the equivalent of a minor in computer science. Um, my, the summer before my senior year of college, I did an internship at a local company, and they offered me a full-time job. So uh, going into my second semester as a senior in college, I had a job, which meant I was somewhat less inclined to go finish that degree. Okay. Um, so I graduated with a degree in religious studies, which is cool, and a uh, job in software, which was remunerating. You jump, you jump right into this job mm -hmm. outside of college, and at some point a shift happened. Yes. So I had that job for 10 years. Not that job, but that career for 10 years. I worked at four different companies. Um, some were good, some were bad. Um, uh, at about that 10-year point, I was working... Um, for a company that was located about an hour and 20 minutes from my house. So I had a long commute. And I ended up in a carpool with these two other guys who also worked at the company and lived more or less nearby. When you spend that much time in a car, um, you quickly kind of blow past talking about football, which is what they mostly wanted to do. Um, and I have they had a, an almost limitless capacity to talk about work but I often didn't want to talk about work. And there's only so much small talk you can make uh, when you're spending two to three hours in a car every day before eventually you get to big philosophical issues. <laughs> um, and um, these were two people who were very, very nice people, um, but who have very different belief systems and very different backgrounds uh, than I do. And so we had some very interesting debates about religious and moral and philosophical and ethical things that you don't expect to have at eight in the morning on your way to work. Um, and one day we hit what I guess is basically the, 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 the apogee of that kind of conversation where uh, Mike, the guy who happened to be driving, said, so, well, what do you think? What's the, the meaning of life? What is the purpose of life? Um, in contrast to his offering, I said, well, I guess... Fundamentally, it comes down to I judge uh, whether I've lived a good life or not by whether I left the world better than I found it. That I want to be making a positive difference and improving things. And I said that, and I said, hmm, yeah, that sounds good. I like that. <laughs> um, and then I got to work and went up into my office and sat down at my desk and said, so what am I doing? Because the job I had, although fine, was not really making a directly measurable positive impact on the world. It wasn't necessarily making the world a worse place, but I, I, didn't, I felt like I'd spent all morning talking the talk and then failed to walk the walk. So you walked up into kind of a, a contrast. Yeah. It became harder to justify what I was doing day to day with the highfalutin ethical principle I just posited half hour earlier. 
Um, and did that come up, you know, an apple hit you on the head moment? What flickers of, of question had you had before that time? See, no one I think had ever asked that question directly. How, you aren't often, outside of college, having that kind of conversation. Um, so, you know, it had been a long time since I would had to articulate a personal philosophy. I had been sort of dissatisfied with my job for a while, um, in a sense of, is this what the most important thing I could be doing? Is this the best thing I could be doing? Are there better places for me? But um, it was just sort of general dissatisfaction. You know, there were things I didn't like about the, the role that I was in, too. Um, but I probably would have continued on more or less satisfied if I hadn't had that really sort of cliche epiphany that, oh, wait a minute, this isn't the, this isn't my life's mission. Um, I and, and how cool that you uh, asked the question. It sounds like you were able to articulate what was important to you. Yes. Kind of on a dime. Yes, yes. So clearly I had been thinking about it. It wasn't like a brilliant insight. It's, you know, the, the, the weakest possible formulation of like every, <laughs> every general ethical principle out there. But I think, but it seemed like, okay, oh, I can, I'm willing to stand by that. That's a criteria that you can judge decisions and actions on. And again, like I said, once I'd said it out loud, I suddenly felt like, well, I guess I, I'm committed now. Someone heard me say it. Yeah. Now I have to do it. So, and, and you heard you say it. Right, right. <laughs> right I guess more importantly. So um, then I started thinking about, well, okay, if that's the measure of a life, if that's how I judge whether a life is successful or meaningful or not, if that's the, the meaning of life, so to speak, well, what now? What should I go do? that will be making the world a better place, that will leave it better than I found it. And I had a couple of criteria. The most important criteria for me was that I wanted to make the world a better place while seated, preferably in air conditioning. So I was not going to go join <laughs> Habitat for Humanity or the Peace Corps. I was not going to become a doctor and go to Doctors Without Borders or volunteer in Haiti. I knew that I wanted to be sitting down in climate control while making the world a better place. And what made that important to you? I don't like the outdoors. Creature, creature comforts? Yeah. Yeah, I'm fundamentally lazy. Um, I don't like being outside or uncomfortable in any way. Um, so I, I think okay, there's still I think there's still scope for doing good work even even with that that limitation. I, I guess I, I think my particular strengths are intellectual rather than physical, um, and uh, thankfully there was a place for that. So um, I cast around for a while. Did I want to go to law school? Do I want to become a teacher? Too terrifying. So um, I just and and how before how clear were you at, at this in this epiphany moment? How immediate was that decision to make a change? Not immediate. Uh, it was I immediately decided that I'm not happy where I am. It took a while. It took until I came up with the solution to be confident that I wanted to do it. Um, but the door was open from that moment, and you started yeah, kind of. I wouldn't say that what happened was I said I have to make a change and now go for how to do it. I think what happened was I said. This doesn't seem quite right. Let me think. And then once I hit upon a solution, then, okay, now I'm going to do it. Um, which I guess is more how I, how I roll. <laughs> um, so what I finally decided was, and this is, I think, to be fair, influenced in large part by the fact that I was watching a lot of the West Wing, um, that, I, that I could do what I wanted to do in a, a public service role um, in some form or another. Um, and, you know, so the joke is that I wanted to be Sam Seaborn, who is Rob Lowe's character on The West Wing. Um, I no longer want to be Sam Seaborn, having done public policy for a while. I think I want to be Josh Lyman, but that's okay. <laughs> um, but so, okay, I want to get into government or some sort of public service thing, which is why my first thought was 
do I go to law school or do I do this or that? Um, but what I did know, I think nearly for sure, was that what I was posing was a significant career change. And I, des- I decided that the mechanism for that was going to be education. Mm-hmm. That I was going to go. And how did you make that decision? I don't know. That just seemed, it seemed obvious to me mm-hmm. that I was going to quit my job. I was going to go get a credential and then go do something. Um, that was the way I, because I didn't know how to do the other stuff. Mm-hmm. And um, there's actually some security even in that decision, right? That's a stake in the ground. This is a route that I'm going to take. Right. And I know how step. to do that. Yeah. <laughs> um, and, you know, the, I, I, as part of it is looking back on how I started my career in the first place, the first job I got was because I made a connection as an undergrad through my schooling. Yes, I learned practical and important things, but I also met people and was introduced to people in organizations that got me a job. And so if I was going to start out working, if I wanted a job working in the public sector, I needed to meet people who could offer me such a job. Um, and I thought, well, I'll go to school mm-hmm. and into a public policy program through peers and professors and internships, whatever, I will meet someone who will get me that next job. The actual education I was going to receive was more or less secondary. I was going to go to school. What do you mean by that? I was going to go to school, take the classes, get the degree as a means to the end of meeting the person who was going to get me my first job. Okay. So you knew that this was a way to build a network or open doors for right. you that were going to connect you. Right. Now, a very expensive way to do that. <laughs> um, but, uh, you know, and luckily, as it happened, I, I did learn a lot of things that made it possible for me to get and do well at that job. And so I um, applied to three different graduate schools, was accepted to two of them, decided that I wanted to go back to Brown um, to for a degree in public policy, gave notice at my job, and then had a few months off before I went back to school. Um, it was 10 years after I graduated as an undergrad that I went back to start as a master's student. So you were how old? 32. And, and what else was going on in your life? It's different to jump into school as a 20-something than as a 30-something. Yes. Yes, it is. It would not have been possible in many ways if I hadn't been very fortunate enough to have done some financial planning up in advance. So we had been saving up money just in general. Um, and once I sort of started to have this plan, we accelerated that saving process so that we could draw down our savings while I was not working and help pay for school and then um, be prepared for that. Making a decision to quit one's job and go to school with the aim of then going to get a less well-paying job afterwards is not a decision that you make lightly and when you're married, not one you make on your own. Um, So it took a while to get um, the whole team uh, on board. It's interesting. I think that some people listening will be thinking, yeah, sure, some people can make a career change, but they don't have, you know, but I have kids, or I have this, or I have that, and that that can make people think, this is not possible for me. Yeah, and so again, I was very lucky that we had the means to do that. Um, You know, we were able to keep paying our mortgage, and we had savings enough to make the tuition affordable and still be able to, you know, eat. Um... And, you know, we weren't overburdened with loans or anything. You know, a lot of people I went to school with had, was a, it was a very difficult financial burden for them, and they were, you know, 25. I don't know what I would have done if I had been unable to. You know, I, part of what made the decision relatively easy was that we ran the numbers and we could do it. Um, I think it would have been a much tougher decision if, you know, it would have meant, well, we'd have to move, move out of our house into an apartment. You know, delaying gratification is hard, and sticking with something you're not happy with once you decide you're not happy with it is really hard. 
what I imagine would have happened is that in my particular circumstance that would have delayed that what what could have happened was all right well I know what I want to do I can't afford to do it now but now I know what I want to do I can do a 12 month plan to budget for it and make it happen that's not easy for everybody to do to no. think like a 12 month planner so no especially because I'm not good at delaying gratification <laughs> so what taught you to do that or or what so very candidly, my wife is the CFO of our relationship. And I said, can we make this work? And she ran the numbers and said, yes. And if she'd said, no, but we can make it work in six months, that would have been the answer. Some people are very good at budgeting and planning and watching their spending and their, their you know, income and their expenditures. Um, and some people don't do that as naturally. Um, I have always been very lucky that I would had good enough jobs that I could not pay as much attention to that as I should and still... Mm-hmm. You know, remain solvent, um, and that I could sort of by accident save up some money. You know, that just due to poor planning and not spending enough, right. I savings. <laughs> um, but you know, so I, I mean, I, uh, I always have had made an effort to put money aside and have savings. And actually, I, I read a book, The Wealthy Barber. I don't know who wrote it. The the framing device is this guy and his friends all go to the same barber and get their haircut. The barber gives them financial advice. I don't know. But the couple things that I remember from the book are, are, are get a will made and save 10% every month. And so I've always kind of just done that. And okay, the book said so. Right. Um, and it's one of those, you set it and forget it. Oh God, that's, that's Ronco, right? Um, <laughs> but you know, you, you set up an automatic transfer and then you don't have to be a budgety person. You've kind of done it by default. Right. Um, so, and that's cool how just the, you got some nuggets out of it readable, that were like very immediate yeah. and meaningful yeah. little steps that you took. Yeah. How hard was it for you to walk away from such a, a lucrative field into a much less lucrative field? It was hard. At the time, I was excited enough about this new thing I was going to do that I was okay with it. I mean, from a purely economic calculation the return on investment of my master's degree is profoundly negative, <laughs> right? Um, it's going to take a long time, if ever, for me to reach the same just base salary level that I was at in, a, in your typical public sector job um, that I was at as a, you know, uh, 10 years along in my career in the software industry. My joke was my first job out of grad school was adjusted for inflation, exactly the same salary as my first job out of college. Um, and that was you know, 12 years later. (laughs) So, um, that was an adjustment. Um, and every once in a while when I was not in moments of dissatisfaction with my new job, I would occasionally calculate what I think I would have been making had I stayed at the software company. And then I would cry a little inside, but, um, but it's, 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 it takes a real commitment to make a jump like that. Knowing, you know, so I think, you know, two things about it. One is I was lucky enough that I earned enough in my first career that I had a foundation. The other, but the other thing is quality of life matters as much or more than um, compensation. Mm-hmm. Um, that that last software job I worked for, it was a great company, and I really liked the people I worked with, and I was paid very well. The gamble I was making was that my quality of life would be improved enough that I wouldn't miss the money. Has that proven to be true? Some of the time, yes. Yeah, some of the time, no. I mean, I didn't want to set myself up for a... Um, like an evaluation metric where if I wasn't blissfully happy all the time, the experiment was a failure, right? <laughs> right. Um, you know, I, I have had a better quality of life. You know, fundamentally, what, what I used to joke about was I wanted to end up in a job where when someone asked what I did, I could answer it briefly, and they would say, oh, 
<laughs> as opposed to, oh. And, and, so, and what made that important to you? I don't know. So both because, you know, one wants to have pride in one's work, and um, I also wanted to be more excited on my job than that. Personal satisfaction is important, but other people thinking that what you're doing is important contributes to your satisfaction, at least mine, um, in the job. So when people ask you today, what do you do? Oh, it's, compli- do it's complicated again. It's complicated again. Uh, my first job out of grad school was working um, for the state legislature as a budget analyst, which was a fascinating first job um, and a very, very good first job, but not one that I would have wanted to have for a long time. Um, and then from there, I transitioned to um, working on as part of Rhode Island's health insurance exchange, which is where I am today. The shortest version is that I'm now working uh, to implement Obamacare in Rhode Island. So people either get excited and ask more questions or they walk away or argue with me about how that's socialism. I actually love those fights because I can now say, no, I do this for a living. <laughs> um, but um, no one says, oh, they're interested one way or the other for the most part. So knowing what you know now mm-hmm. and being where you are now, if you could go back and give yourself some advice oh. or encouraging words. Right. Uh, buy Microsoft and Apple stock. <laughs> um, <laughs> Right? And then don't bother working at all. Um, no, so I think that the, the, the fundamental things are um, four things. So one is um, who you know is as important as what you know. Um, and uh, that taking the opportunity to meet people and keep track of who you know and not being afraid to leverage connections um, is important. It's awkward to write to someone you kind of know and be like, hey, I need a job, can you help me? But oftentimes they're more than happy to talk to you or write back, or sometimes they're not. But um, I've had six or seven jobs in how you count, and I think only two of them were through just sending in a resume blind. Mm -hmm. The rest all came because someone said, hey, you should apply to this thing where I work. Or, oh, hey, I know they need someone. Um, So that's how it really happens. And before you move on to number two, what... You said keeping track of who you know. Mm. You Terrible at it. No. I wish I had, I wish I had a system. Um, I, I, I have an address book which is just full of everyone who's ever emailed me. Um, but um, I, 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 to me, it's more about just racking one's brain at every opportunity. Who have I ever met that's remotely relevant to this issue um, that I could call up without it being totally weird? Um, so there are a number of people that now, if I were to change jobs, that I'd think about wind up either ask their advice or a reference, then I would have to get over the hurdle of, should I call them? Would that be strange? But I think that's sort of expected. Mm-hmm. And just having been on the other side of those phone calls, that it's fine. I do have a lot of clients who are afraid of reaching out. What do you do to get over that hurdle? Be respectful and considerate of someone's time. I always start with an email and then schedule time to talk and get off the phone in 15 minutes. Mm-hmm. Um, no one is going to begrudge you 15 minutes. And in the worst case, they'll think you're kind of a dork. But... <laughs> You are kind of a dork, so that's okay. That's the takeaway. Right? You are kind of a dork. And just own it, man. (laughs) So you were talking about advice you would give yourself, and we got through number one. So the second one I would say is save money, even by accident. Um, Having that cushion, that's a sort of prosaic one, but it really is having that safety net lets you make crazier decisions. It gives you options that you don't even know you want yet. Yeah, and I don't want to say that, I don't, there's kind of a chicken and egg thing here, right? Because if you're coming right out of college and don't have the savings yet, it's not really fair for me to say, save up money. Um, I don't think that's a necessary thing, but it does make things easier. And so to the extent that you can invest your happiness, you know, defer 
your satisfaction until many, many later. Because in the worst case, you don't change your job and you buy yourself a boat. Um, <laughs> but, um, you know, I, I think that maybe the better way to put that is um, what my dad always told me, which is live beneath your means. Um, don't live within your means. Live even less than that. That, you know, if you get a raise at your job, don't start buying more expensive things, if you possibly can. It's impossible. Everyone ramps up their consumption to match their income. But if you can keep, if you can make a conscious effort to try to not do that to some extent, um, that that's it's always better. Number three, you're not locked into your choices. I had the same career. Ten years isn't that long, but it's a long time. It was, you know, a third of my life um, and all of my professional life, where this was who I was. My identity was I was a technologist. I knew that eventually I was going to be a, you know, a director in some company or other, and then eventually it'd become a CTO somewhere, and I was going to eventually start my own company. I had all kinds of ideas, and that was the path. Those kinds of things aren't irreversible. Um, you can quit your job and do something else, um, even if you're old, um, <laughs> as I was, relatively. I mean, my God, I went back to grad school with people who were 10 years younger than me. That was weird, but you know, you got to, got to be the smart kid. Um, so that was fine. You know, life is built on path dependence, right? You make a choice and that affects your later choices and you almost don't even think about the things you didn't do, right? To put away status quo bias, right? It's harder to change. Yeah. Um, and, you know, if I had started out in public policy out of undergrad, I'd be in a very different place. I might not have ended up here. One is not as locked in as one thinks. And the final thing I would say is make your weird resume your asset. I have a weird resume. I have a Bachelor of Arts in Religious Studies. I have 10 years of software development experience, and then a Master in Public Policy, and then two and a half years of first budget analyst, and then, you know, public policy, technologist, health policy stuff. It's a weird-ass resume. So two things about that. One, well, that's my strength. I'm a generalist. I bring together these disparate areas, and it makes for an easy cover letter. Your cover letter is now explaining your weird resume in a way that tells your story. Um, so embrace your resume. If you, I, I have a friend who uh, I worked with at one of my um, software jobs who before she did that was a pastry chef. That's a weird resume, but it's it differentiating. I'm not sure she could claim to apply those techniques in any way. Not a lot of baking or decorating in the software field. But, you know, it's diversity experience. So, um, and how do you do that with your, with, for example, the religious studies? Yeah, that one just, that one, that one's kind of, that one's just, a conversation starter. But, um, you know, now my pitch is I know about public policy and I can understand technology and that's a, a relatively rare combination and I can leverage that. If, you are, if you're contemplating a career change, think about, you don't want the previous experience to be a waste. I think some people are afraid that it's going to be a detriment. You're saying turn that into your strength. Exactly. I mean, so you want, you want to work, you don't want to find yourself being considered overqualified. Right? That, that's the thing. Suddenly, you're, suddenly I'm in an entry level position. Right, but I'm 32 and I'm 10 years of professional experience. So you've got to turn that into a plus. Well, here's how I'm going to use that. You know, I've said many times to people in interviews, like, I really don't want that to be a waste. Um, I did that. I want to use that to bring value to the next organization I'm a part of. Um, and they often go, oh, yeah, that's interesting. Um, I mean, everyone's polite in an interview. But um, <laughs> it can be scary to have a weird resume. I've read weird resumes and I've had that reaction. Like, oh, this is a kind of weird resume. But um, if you can tell a story about yourself that makes it make sense, you know, paint a picture of why what you're doing now is in some way a continuation of what you're doing. This is the story I tell, that whether no matter what I was doing, the, the continuous arc of my career, process improvement, right? That's generic enough that it can happen in any kind of field, in any mm. kind of company, in any kind of project. What I do is I come in, 
I see what's wrong and I make it better. I've done that in software, I've done that in budgeting, I've done that in health policy. Um, that's a, just a skill set. That's a, a way of operating. Um, and how naturally did you come to that insight that, oh, I can articulate these things this way? Was it a process that you had to push yourself through, or did it just kind of come naturally to your mind, this is how I can tie, up, tie this up into a package? You spend enough time reading your own resume, you kind of start to factor out what the commonalities are, right? Mm-hmm. So, um, well, I said that four times. No, there's something I've seen over and over again, right? Um, And the other thing is, you know, depending on what your career path is, for me, it was almost as easy as looking at what what was the last thing I did. Because presumably by my last job in an industry that I've been experienced in, I'd be focusing on what I did best. Ideally, right? It's not quite that simple, but because it was the stuff I, I ended up focusing on. Looking back, oh, yeah, well, okay, look, there's the pattern. And now let's, how, how do I carry that forward? What's the best choice that you made for yourself in this whole process where you kind of look back and say, you know what, like, good on, good on me that I did that? Wow, that's interesting. The best choice that I made. You know, every choice depends on the ones you made before it, right? So the choice to leave the state senate and go into this current job, that was a great choice. I'm really loving what I'm doing now. But that wouldn't have been possible if I hadn't first chosen to go back to grad school and do the project I did in grad school with that teacher who then ended up hiring me. And I wouldn't have done that if I hadn't chosen to quit and go back to school, which I never would have done if I hadn't <laughs> taken that class that Adam made me take. So, and none uh, of it would have ever happened if you hadn't watched The West Wing, right? Right. So like, that's the thing. is Aaron Sorkin's choice to write that show. Um, you know, I think the choice to say, to prioritize job satisfaction and self-actualization over the sort of standard safe career path um, turns out to have been a, a good decision. I know more people who are happy because they love their job than are happy because they make a ton of money. If you can do both, I certainly recommend that. Um, <laughs> right? Um, and, you know, I plan to, if at all possible, make more money and as much as I possibly can. But I would never advise anyone to take a job or stay in a job with compensation as the most important factor, and that uh, was borne out, and I was glad that it was. Thank you so much, Matt. It's been a delight talking to you. You're very welcome. Um, Anytime. Matt Harvey works in public policy in Rhode Island. This is Carrie Spaulding, professional coach. For more stories and resources to help you in your own transition, visit www.carriespaulding.com.